Good morning, church family. We have come to the end of a summer, and I've breathed a sigh of relief as uh, one of the youth ministers here. Summer is fun, and it's crazy, and it's good to be home. Uh, It's also good to be at the end of Josh's sabbatical. I know you have missed him. I haven't been here enough to miss him. Had I been here, I would miss him. Uh, But he'll be back next Sunday. Next Sunday is also the Sunday morning when we'll highlight and hear some testimonies from not just some of our students, but other people who have had mission experiences this summer. So uh, our mission celebration service will be next Sunday. We hope you can be here to celebrate. And we're really kind of moving into that new rhythm and that new flow uh, as school starts up. I know a lot of people here, uh, your life is not affected by the school year, but mine is pretty drastically, and so are a lot of others. And whether you have children of your own or whether you work in a school system. And so uh, this, this kind of is the beginning of the transition of a new season where lots of people want to get into new places and new rhythms and new routines. And so I just encourage you uh, to maybe this is a, a season to be able to invite somebody to come and be here at Sycamore View with you. Um, I want to tell you about, uh, this is kind of my disclaimer. Let me tell you my, my sermon prep process. Uh, I love some of it, and I very strongly dislike, I won't say hate, because that's a bad word in my family, at least to the five-year-old, but I hate another part of it. And here's how this usually goes. When I prepare sermons, which I don't do that often, and it happens even when I'm doing messages to youth, but especially it seems like there's something distinct about a Sunday morning sermon with the church. I, I get into the study and I do the research and I have this real kind of epiphanal moment where I'm like, yes, like that's it, this moment between me and God. And then it all goes downhill from there because all I want to do is bring you into that moment with me. And I just, sometimes I feel almost like I cheapen the experience because I start putting words around this moment of intimacy. Um, so my prayer this morning is somehow that God can get beyond my words and my thoughts because my thoughts are all over the place this morning. They really are. And that somehow you can meet God in a really personal, powerful, transformational way this morning. I did this week. I just don't know if it's going to come through in my words. So with that said, let's, let's bow and let's pray together. God, we have this incredible gift because of Jesus, because of the presence of your Holy Spirit to meet you just like Moses did on the mountain, and know you. Though you're unknowable fully, we know in part. And I just pray that we would walk out of this room this morning with a greater, deeper love for you, your power, your awesomeness, and that we get to be called your sons and your daughters. It's in the name of Jesus we all pray. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever been let down by meeting somebody important. A few years ago, I think I shared this story here on a Sunday morning, but I got to meet Michael Jordan when I was a kid. And I don't know what bigger name or celebrity there was when I was in sixth grade, but Michael Jordan was probably the biggest I could think of. I was a little kid in York, Nebraska, and the trainer for the Bulls had gone to the University of Nebraska, and he was a friend of one of my friend's dad's. And so we got to go to the Bulls 
hotel and we were going to get to meet Michael Jordan in Lincoln, Nebraska because they were playing an exhibition game. You might be thinking, I didn't know the Chicago Bulls played in Nebraska. Well, exhibition games they did. So we went up and we waited and we waited when we waited and then finally somebody from the Bulls came out and said, well, Michael's not actually going to be able to meet you today, but you can stand between his hotel room and the bus and talk to him on the way. And he may be able to stop and sign autographs. We're like, that's okay. And so <clears throat> we stood there and over, there were like seven of us, all sixth grade kids from this little town in Nebraska. There was no big paparazzi because it was a secret of where the bulls were, were staying. And so we were standing there and the bulls started coming out. Scotty Pippen, he was a second year. I don't think he was a rookie at the, at the time. Uh, but for those of you who have any knowledge of basketball, like this is a big deal. Just trust me, okay? If you're not a basketball fan, insert somebody you would be really excited to meet. That's the excitement level that we were having. So Scottie Pippen walks across the parking lot. He had just gotten a Whopper at the Burger King. And so Scottie Pippen walks up and we're like, that's Scottie Pippen. So we go over and we're talking to him and he's really cool and takes his time. And then <clears throat> slowly but surely, all these guys start coming out. And we had like our Chicago Bulls pennant that everybody could sign. And everybody was just real cordial. There were, there were like seven of us. And then the one we had all been waiting for, his holiness himself, which he wasn't quite that yet, but <clears throat> Michael Jordan comes out. We're like, here he comes. We're so excited. I mean, we're just about to explode. And so out walks Michael and he has headphones on and he just walks to the bus and he's talking to some girl across the parking lot kind of that he knows. He doesn't stop and look at anybody. He signs like six autographs. I was one of them, by the way. Um, <clears throat> and because there were a few other people other than just us, but he, he really blew us off. And of all of the bulls, we were so, so disappointed in the interaction we had with him in that moment because the expectations that we had and who he was. So have you ever been there? Have you ever been in that moment where you had great expectations for a meeting and you were very disappointed. Well, and I don't want to hold that against Michael. He may have had a bad day. I'm sure he was much more gracious to the next little group of small town kids in the next exhibition city he played in. But <clears throat> Exodus 34, which is where we've spent this last month, it's, it's the opposite. It is this momentous occasion where Moses has the chance to meet God. And it's not just at that moment that he, he knows God. Before that, it's almost as if he knew of God. And now there's this new level of intimacy where he goes away with what I had hoped to go away from that moment was Michael Jordan saying, hey, Jim, here's my number. You call me anytime, buddy. That did not happen at all. And so Moses comes to this mountaintop with this second set of stone tablets that we've been hearing about. And in this moment, God introduces himself in a more personal, more intimate, more knowable way than he had ever introduced himself in the history before that. That's amazing. And so Moses comes out of this moment not just knowing of God, are knowing about God, but he knows God. 
And so for the last few weeks, we've had this passage from Exodus 34, 6 and 7 that's been preached. And the passage goes like this, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. I get the honor of that last part. (laughs) So we've had all the kind of good feeling stuff, gracious, compassionate, Yahweh's personal name, abounding in love. And I get a little bit of it. The, the past, part of the passage I've been kind of assigned to preach this morning is maintaining love <clears throat> to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That sounds pretty fun. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. Gets you excited, doesn't it? Get, gets me really excited. So, for the, the good stuff, the happy stuff at first. And actually, I think it's all happy, but it's hard stuff. Maintaining love to thousands. Uh, the, the idea or the imagery there in the Hebrew is one of kind of a guard or a sentry. The past several uh, people who have spoken from this stage have talked about the, the hesed or the It's a guttural sound. So if you really want to be Hebrew, it's a chesed. Or if you want to sound like an English speaker trying to have a guttural sound, you can call it the chesed. Uh, but it's the covenant love. And somehow God is saying, uh, I am the one who protects and maintains and makes sure that love is available. I'm going to keep you in love. And not just uh, to you as an individual, but to thousands. And so it starts with this beautiful idea of multiplying love that's abundant and accessible. And where that love is not felt, where there's a breach, where there's wickedness or rebellion or sin, these three kind of different Hebrew words that are talking about different ways of not living into who you were created to be, there's forgiveness. And if you see, it's not just that he forgives those things, but he is forgiving. He is one who in his character is forgiving. And so he never runs out of love and he never runs out of forgiveness. In fact, Micah will quote this passage in Micah 7. And in Micah 7, he uses the phrase, uh, God delights in mercy or God delights in showing mercy. And so <clears throat> it, sometimes we have this idea of God who is kind of right on the edge. And especially when we see a passage like this that we're about to get into, that he's kind of on the edge of maybe his throneship and he's just ready to catch you in the act of doing something bad so he can zap you. And that is not the idea that scripture passes on. In fact, scripture kind of paints this picture that God is on the edge just to show delight and to show mercy. Like he wants to just heap forgiveness on us, but we've got to, we've got to ask for it. We've got to stop. I I think of uh, a story. um, My oldest daughter, Anna Grace is here and she loves it when I tell stories about her. So you're welcome, Anna Grace. And when she was 
like, I don't know, five, six. I mean, she was little. I remember this moment. We were at her, uh, Stacy's parents' house in Nashville, and Anna Grace did something really, very, very, a very minor infraction. I don't even remember exactly what it was, but she ran into something or knocked over something or broke something of Stacy's sisters. We were all at the house. And so we did what good parents do. We said, hey, just say I'm sorry. And Anna Grace did what good, strong-willed children do. She said, no. And we said, just all you got to do. It really wasn't that big of a deal. We just said, hey, just, just tell Aunt Christy you're sorry. And <laughs> I will always remember kind of the, the, how this made me feel. But in that moment, she didn't really say no. She just kind of, uh, she started crying and she refused to speak. And we said, just, it'll all be over. Just say, I'm sorry and move on. And she didn't. 45 minutes, she just stood her ground, unwilling to apologize for something that wasn't a big deal. But by then, of course, after we had said, you have to say you're sorry, you have to dig in, right, parents? You got to engage in battle and you got to win that battle. Otherwise, well, we won't talk about that, the way kids turn out. So, but in that moment, I would have delighted in showing mercy. Like, even if Anna Grace would have just looked up and, like, whispered, I'm, I'm sorry. Not even told Aunt Christy. I would have been like, great, okay, we're good, let's move on. But, but that's kind of the story of our uh, resolute uh, unwillingness to own our stuff. And, and I think that's what some of this is moving toward. Are we willing to be real with our sin? Because God has a nature that is unable to not be real with our sin. So the passage says, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So we've, we're beyond the maintaining love and forgiving wickedness. This is a tough phrase. <clears throat> People that know Hebrew a lot better than I do say that this phrase, a little closer translation in English would be, but who will by no means clear the guilty? That word punishment, we have a lot of trouble with that. We have a little, I think, better understanding or we feel a little, better, a little bit better about this God who maybe doesn't clear the guilty. So he's not punishing even though punishment is probably something we need more of in our culture in some ways. But what is the nature of guilt and sin? Are transgressions really real? Is sin real? Or is it some religious kind of mumbo-jumbo that we made up to try to modify people and keep them in their lane? And it's all about behavior modification. Because I think that's kind of a humanistic expectation or humanistic uh, worldview understanding, right? Of what's right and what's wrong. Everything is so varied around the world from culture to culture about what morality is. And yet <clears throat> here, I think when, when God talks about he's faithful, he's compassionate, but there's something that if it is transgressed in this world, that action brings about a reaction. 
And I don't think it's something that we make up. I think it's something that is real. I think sin is real. I think it's dehumanizing. I think it hurts. I think it kills. And I think that sometimes we live in such a grace-filled world, which I want us to, and we spent four weeks in grace, right? We're just going to spend one week in justice, but four weeks in grace. Sometimes we can turn the grace of God into something really, really cheap. We forget how much it truly costs. And, and I, I think what I'm understanding the nature of God to be is in creation and in reality and existence, he's, he's put some checks and balances in place. And if you're going to step out of where he said, this is what will bless you, this is how you are to live, you're going to reap what you sow. I should say we are going to reap what we sow. I wrote, I wrote on the top of my outline this morning, really big, we and us, because this is a we and us lesson. This is not a you. We all <clears throat> have been in that place where we are suffering consequences because of something we've done in our lives where we are suffering from sin. And so, yeah, God is going to forgive that because he is forgiving. That's what he does. But he's not going to do it without a cost. So <clears throat> hang, hang there with me for a minute and let's move on. And, and just remember this, God's goal is to end evil. God's goal is to obliterate sin it's to restore the broken. It's to usher in shalom, this peaceful, unfractured existence where all things live in harmony. So God, his justice demands for evil to be snuffed out, for God to act. Okay, so how does he do that? Keep reading with me, because this is, I think, really alarming at first. It says he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so <clears throat> this is when I would like to step down and say, there's a couple guys in the room who can answer this better, and I'm just going to turn it over to them. But I've got the microphone, and it's all wired up, so I just need to go with it. Uh, I, I, a couple things. Sometimes I think we've all come to a scripture where what face value is, is not the meaning. And we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So, uh, you know, on, on the one hand, we have passages like in Deuteronomy 24 or Jeremiah 32, where there's a very clear teaching that you're responsible for your sin, and you don't pay the consequences of other people's sins spiritually. You are not spiritually responsible for the sin of the person behind you or the person in front of you. You are responsible for your own sin. So on the one hand, we, we have that teaching, <clears throat> um, but there's still something about even when forgiveness is offered to us, it doesn't remove consequences. And we all get this, right? Like I, I think of uh, when I was in middle school, another middle school story, and I hesitate to tell this because it's vandalism, so don't do it, youth group, but they've all heard this, this story. But when I was also in sixth grade, probably working through the hurt of the Michael Jordan story, 
my friends Scott and David and I, we realized that if you take a whole bunch of toilet paper and you get it wet in the bathroom and then you chuck it up and it will attach permanently to the bathroom ceiling in the middle school. Did you know that? It is really cool to a sixth grader that doesn't know any better. So Scott and David and I would, after lunch, we really, in our mind, at least my mind, I wasn't thinking like a vagrant. I wasn't thinking I want to destroy, destroy school property. I was just thinking, this is cool. Look, it goes splat and stays up there. And so David and Scott and I would go up there <clears throat> for a couple days and we'd make a couple of these little toilet paper bombs and we'd chuck them up in the corners. And before long, there was like its own crown molding in the guy's bathroom <laughs> at York Middle School. So uh, the next day, Scott and I got called into the office. Notice, it was Scott, David, and myself, but the principal had gotten to David. He had turned me and Scott in. <laughs> Somehow David wasn't involved. <laughs> I looked up on, on Facebook yesterday just to see where he was. I was hoping for really, like, bad life, but he's fine. So... <clears throat> Scott and, Dave, Scott and I go and we face the consequences. We're talking to Mr. Moses, our principal, and he's like, did you guys do this? And we're like, yeah, we did do this. He said, do you think that's okay? And we're like, it was cool. He's like, no, but it's not okay. So he was quick to forgive. He knew that it wasn't necessarily my nature to vandalize the school on a regular basis. But <clears throat> he said, so I forgive you, however there were consequences. So I got to scrub the bathroom floor of that middle school bathroom every day after school that week. It was a lovely job. So forgiveness is there, but there's still consequences. And so I think when we start talking about this idea of punishment being passed on from generation to generation, I think that's part of what Moses, I think that's part of what Scripture has in mind, that there's just consequences. When we do stuff, when there's these actions, there are reactions. And when I, as a dad, when I do something that is sinful, that is prideful, that shows that I trust something or someone more than I trust God, it's going to negatively impact my thousand children, right? They're, they are going to suffer the consequences. And so I think that's part even though I know I feel fully forgiven, I know that if the stuff that I carry around with me that doesn't honor God, they're inheriting that. And then secondly, I do think in the, something that maybe this imagery uh, poses to us is that sin can run in families. I think there are some family curses. I don't believe that they're more powerful than God. I don't believe they're more powerful than the love of Jesus. I don't believe they're more powerful than forgiveness. But I do think that there's a proclivity, there's a bent within some of us toward a certain sin, toward certain behaviors. And thank God, Jesus came along to be the chain breaker, right? He's the one that says that's not the way it has to be. There's a song that was written several years ago by Matthew West called Family Tree. And I just wanted to share a few lyrics from it. <clears throat> it's a great listen. And I will spare you by not singing it. But it's Family Tree by Matthew West. He says, you didn't ask for this. 
Nobody ever would. Caught in the middle of this dysfunction, it's your sad reality. It's your messed up family tree. And all you're left with are all these questions. Are you going to be like your father was and his father was? Do you have to carry what they've handed down? And then he responds like this. No, this is not your legacy. This is not your destiny. Yesterday does not define you. No, this is not your legacy. This is not what you're meant to be. I can break the chains that bind you. Isn't that great news? Like that is incredible news for those of us who feel like we are in some kind of generational curse, some kind of generational sin that we've seen it in a grandparent, we've seen it in a parent, and we've seen it in our own lives. And I I think all of us probably could name something on the spectrum of generational sins, just some may have greater consequences than others. So I think that's something, that's kind of a layer of meaning within this passage. And then the last thing is, remember what I said about God's desire to extinguish evil, to eradicate sin? And sometimes it just takes time because we're hard-headed. And sometimes we won't just say, I'm sorry, Aunt Christy, and move on. Sometimes we dig in our heels because we just can't let go. And like Chris Jackson said in the youth group this morning, our hands are so tightly holding on to, to something that there's no space to put in the blessing of God. And so maybe because we're hard-headed, we're stiff-necked people, it takes a few generations for God to fully eradicate some of the sins in our lives. There's a story, I think, that helps us a little bit understand some of this, how God is forgiving, but there's still consequences. In Numbers 14, you're welcome to look over there, but I'm going to just paraphrase it quickly. But Israel spent a year in the desert or in the wilderness wandering, and they're on the verge of going into the promised land, the the land crawling or flowing with milk and honey. So they scout it out, and they find out that the land is everything that had been promised, only there's giants. There's, There's these people called Amalekites, and they're huge. And in the era of hand-to-hand combat, having giants was like having nukes at your disposal. And instead of trusting God or trusting Moses, they made a drastic decision that day. They said, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. We can't do this. So in that moment, God's ready to kind of eradicate Israel Moses comes back, he quotes part of Exodus 34, and he says, remember, this is who you are. You're this compassionate and gracious God, forgiving. And so the next line out in the dialogue in Numbers 14 out of God's mouth is, you are forgiven. Like it, it's, it's immediate. It's almost like he was just leaning forward, waiting to delight in forgiveness and mercy. But you're going to march around this wasteland for 40 years because 
God decides that the consequences are nobody here except for a couple spies, a couple believers, a couple leaders that trusted God could overcome the Amalekites. Everybody else here, you're going to die in the wilderness. And so while the children, while the weren't necessarily held responsible for the sins of the parents in a spiritual realm, in a physical realm, they absolutely trotted out the punishment that the sins of their parents brought because they were stuck in this wilderness for 40 years. It was unnecessary. But God is forgiving, but sin is not. And because they chose not to trust God, there had to be some kind of reckoning because God is just and justice demands a reckoning. In the Old Testament, it was the sacrificial system. There's no forgiveness without blood. And it's kind of like a thousand years of preparation for this ultimate sacrifice. It's, it's kind of like a thousand years of religion where you understand your sins, there is forgiveness, but it comes at a cost. And so it, it brings us kind of to the, the threshold of where the mercy and the love of God I think most closely comes hand in hand with the justice of God, and that's in the life and especially the death of Jesus, because somebody had to pay the price. That's what Joel's story was about. In Romans 3, there's this passage where, and there's a lot of passages where Paul describes what Jesus did for us, but in 25 and 26, this is what he says, God presented him, speaking about Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Theologically, over the years, historically, uh, this has been called substitutionary atonement. It's a big word, but it just means somebody took our place. And so it, it just seems to me like this compassionate, this gracious God sits on the edge of his seat waiting to extend mercy and forgiveness and love and faithfulness and grace and compassion to those who want it, for those who will say, yeah, it takes so little to move God. And even on these uh, kind of juxtaposed phrases in verse 7, you have this maintaining love to thousands, and then the, uh, the punishment, it's limited to three or four generations. And the word generation isn't there. It's a weird Hebrew idiom, but you could translate it God maintains, Yahweh maintains love to a thousand generations, and he punishes three or four. So if you're stacking things up, mercy and forgiveness and justice are overflowing and ever flowing here, but there are consequences. There is punishment. And what we do really has an impact on this world. And so my challenge is for us to get real with our sin today. It's for us to realize that the cross was a big payment. 
that still continues to pay the price for our sins. And I wonder if there's a sense of dread in any of our lives today because of the sin in our lives. Another story from childhood. I was not a sixth grader. I think I was like maybe a third grader. I don't know. But I had a group of kids. We used to walk home from school to get school together. And one of the kids, her name was Crystal. And she was a good friend of mine. But she decided it'd be funny that day to call me a name I didn't like to be called. Which I will not say. Otherwise, that's what I will be called forever after by the youth group. So... We were walking home. Crystal's calling me this name. I was getting angry. I had the wrath of a seven-year-old, eight-year-old. And so we passed her house. So she decided she was going to go off and go home. I was going to keep walking. And there was this beautiful dirt pile, like a little construction pile with dirt clods. And so I did what any self-respecting elementary boy would do. I picked up the dirt clods and I started chucking them across the street at Crystal. Like, take that, take that. Of course, I didn't hit her and I'm sure it felt a lot more violent than it really was in reality. But then what happened, because I thought, hey, this is all justified. Then she shot the fear of God in me because as she ran in her door before she closed it, she yelled, I'm telling my mom and she's going to call yours and closed the door. And I was like, ah. (laughs) So I went home and I did what any self-respecting elementary kid would do. I took the phone off the hook and I hid it behind my couch. (laughs) Right? I'm no dummy. So for the whole afternoon, I just kept Wondering, and I don't, for those of us that grew up before cell phones, remember if you unplugged a phone or something, there, sometimes there would be a beep, like a like it's disconnected or off the hook. So I was thinking, how can I leave it behind the couch, but it not beep? And so I waited all afternoon for Crystal's mom to call my mom. And I was in a, a spirit of dread because I thought I was going to get found out. Good into the story, Crystal and I, we made up, we were friends, and her mom never called my mom, so. But, but this, this sin that wreaks generations of punishment and consequences, it's real. And so all the, the love and the grace and the compassion that abounds, that it flows from God's character and who he is, it comes at a cost. And when we step out of where God wants us to, it's not because he wants us to be well-behaved people. It's because he has eons of blessing waiting to be poured out into our lives so we can be who we really want to be, who he's created us to be. So this church can be full of joy. I, I think God's got a lot of ways of punishing us. I think our joy is one of the first Because we know we have this sense of dread. There's something internal that God's placed in there. And we can warp it. So I don't trust my feelings a lot. But we have something that God's put within us, especially for believers. The Holy Spirit is our guide that tells us when something we're doing is not what we're supposed to be doing. And and I've got to think that every one of us in here have something 
that we've just kind of decided we either can't beat or it's just not worth the effort anymore because we've tried and we can't. And I think what maybe this message here today says, God's on the edge of his seat. Trust him to shower you with his forgiveness, to delight in giving you mercy. Last thing I'll say um, as we wrap up this morning, and if you're one of our prayer leaders, you can go to your area now. I don't know if this is accurate. I should have checked with some of our scholars in the room, but I have heard Mark Powell did a, a great job addressing the personal name of God, Yahweh, at the beginning of June. And so this, this passage, if you want to kind of find out where does the name Yahweh, how, what are the origins of it? You know, this Exodus 34 is where we get it, but where, where did it start originally? We, we don't really know, but I heard a rabbi once say that this personal name, and, and Jews will not mention the name Yahweh, they'll say the word Adonai because the personal name for God is so holy it's not to be mentioned. But we have taken these uh, Hebrew letters, yod Hey vav Hey, which is a Y, an H, a W, and an H. We've added some vowels, and that's how we come up with the name Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. And the rabbi said, it's the sound of your breath. Again, I don't know if this is right, but I love the point. Wouldn't it be just like God if he created breath where it somewhat resembles the sound, yod Hey vav Hey? you breathe in, where we couldn't even take a breath without remembering it's God who created us. It's God who sustains us. And he and he alone is worthy of our trust. So whatever you don't trust God with in your life this week, in my life, man, let's get it out there. Let's lift it up to the one who sits on the edge of the seat waiting to extend mercy and forgiveness if there's something that you'd like to share with the whole congregation this morning, you can come right down here and talk to Stoney Ramsey, one of our shepherds. If you just want to be prayed with, prayed over, you can go to any of the men or women standing around. Uh, they are waiting for you today. The forgiveness of God is waiting for you. Let's stand and let's sing.